poets. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be alive, courtesy of your grace and mercy. We're grateful, Father, also for the gentleness you have for us and the patience towards us. We thank you for this chance to gather together like this and bring you glory as your body standing together in unity to defend the faith. We thank you for the privilege of learning your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us and teaches us and helps us understand supernatural things. And most of all, Father, we are eternally grateful for your Son, as you know. We're so grateful you gave him up willingly and sacrificed him for our benefit out of your tremendous love for us. We can't fully ever understand this in this life, but we ask that you show us more and more of this each day, and more and more of your heart. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. All right, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make, part 18. So apparently the spirit has a uh, certain way with us, or he has his way with us, let's say, and he also has quite a sense of humor with this series going on. And uh, it's good. It's, it's really encouraging to be reminded of uh, how insufficient we are and how unable we are to see what's coming next. And uh, when you think you're going to change course, the Spirit's like, nope, I'm going to stay right on course. And it's wonderful. And last Pastor mentioned on Sunday. But I want to share this with you, too, that Pastor uh, said in the beginning of Sunday's message. God only gives us so much even while we're listening to the Spirit. And that's something to think about, you know. As we get um, discouraged sometimes, we think we're not listening, we're not hearing everything, when sometimes He only wants to tell us so much, and He only can tell us so much. So it's a good perspective to keep. God only gives us so much, even while we're listening to the Spirit. And by grace, He often only shows us one or two steps out. Not too much that might put us in fear, and not too much that might make us arrogant. That, w- that way, as Pastor mentioned also, we step out of the house. Instead of living in fear, maybe, apprehension about what's to come, knowing too much, God says, I'm going to shine the light on the next step so you can see where to step. But I'm not going to show you five steps ahead right now. So in his eternal wisdom, as a good, good father, We trust Him totally to do the best thing for us. Turn again to Isaiah 55, verse 6. We'll start here again, and uh, this is just a friendly reminder of how far we are from God's thoughts and God's thinking. Isaiah 55, 6. And we'll never have it all figured out in this life. And that's grace. Thank God for that too. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our lives should be about God's plan, and not about our own plan. And to do that, we have to um, discover how God thinks. And we'll never fully be there, we'll never fully... um, understand this great difference between his thinking and our thinking. But for those that are humble, God loves to share more with. He wants to show more of himself to us. But we can't even bear it if we're not humble. On the board, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 in the message, I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work. God's decree For as the sky soars high above earth, so the way I work surpasses the way you work, and the way I think is beyond the way you think. So look again in your Bibles at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. So I was thinking here as I was reviewing, not only are God's ways infinitely higher than our ways, but he also promises that his word will be beneficial to our souls, nutritious even. Isn't that what we just read in all those verses? how it will cause growth no matter what. It can't return empty. God's word always produces. In our day and age, they talk about superfoods like spinach, broccoli, apple cider vinegar. You could go up and look up a whole list on Google and see all the quote-unquote superfoods out there. But in reality, the word of God is the one thing truly necessary. This has been coming out over and over the last few lessons. That's the only thing truly necessary. Do you think if God asked you to go without food for 40 days, like the Lord did, do you think he would and could sustain you? Miraculously, supernaturally, absolutely. How? Don't ask me to explain how that, you know. But that's the reality of how uh, vital and necessary the word of God is on its own not needing anything else to supply us, really. So it's the superfood that can cause any man to be sustained and cause him to bear wonderful fruit in his life. That's the word of God. We just read this in Isaiah 55, and we heard the Lord said in John 4, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And my food is to do the work of him who sent me. Supernatural power. 
And as the Spirit's been pointing out, our job is to be on guard for the distractions in life which are counterfeits to God's ways. So on the board, regarding distractions, they are nothing more than counterfeits. The greatest of these is counterfeit love, including the pursuit of it. That's a really important phrase, including the pursuit of it. Especially in America, it's easy to be distracted and tempted to chase certain things. And these things are intended by the kingdom of darkness to lead us astray from the Lord as our first love. It really cuts right down to that. The kingdom of darkness wants to tempt our flesh away from Jesus as our first love. There's nothing more important than that in this life. So know the enemy's tactics and be vigilant against them. See, if you know that's what he's trying to do, that's a huge step. A lot of people aren't even listening to the word of God to know his schemes. But if you know that's what he's trying to do, now you can make a decision to uh, be alert, to, um, how do I say this politely, uh, put Satan off when you see a temptation or a distraction coming at you. So I want you to just imagine for a minute, put on your um, imagination caps. Imagine standing in a field right now, just a wide open field right now. About 100 feet away from you is the Lord himself. Standing there, facing you as he's about to teach you. And all of a sudden, a literal bag of garbage full of worldly distractions plops down out of the sky onto the ground between you and Jesus. I know, it's kind of weird, of course. But just go with the visual. Have an imagination. And as you're trying to listen to Jesus teach you, another one lands. And another one. Before you know it, the garbage bags of distractions, even ones filled with so-called good things, they become so high that you can barely see Jesus and you're having trouble hearing him also. The kingdom of darkness likes to tempt our flesh to hold on to these bags of garbage so that we can't hear and see the Lord the way we should. You know what? He doesn't even mind if we listen to the Lord as long as it's not how we should. So that he can maybe even fool us into thinking we're living the life fool us into thinking we're listening when we're not. There's a certain way we should listen uh, to the Lord, right? Like an attitude of the heart, right? As you approach the word, we should approach the word in awe, really. Every time we open our Bible or come to class or read the blogs or whatever, we should approach the word with a certain mindset of respect and awe. But do we all the time? Think about Martha, who is listening while cleaning the house. We talked about this last week. How many of you listen to a message at home while cleaning the house? Aren't you doing exactly what Martha did? Or are you sitting attentively at the feet of the Lord, blocking everything else out, both eyes and both ears on Jesus, on his word? So our job by faith is to toss aside each bag of garbage behind our backs and not look back at it. Our job is to call it out as what it is, 
Even good things could be in that bag. Things that God says are good could be in those bags. Call it out as what it is, a distraction towards counterfeit love. And something definitely not necessary for our life or happiness. We love to, again, use the word need, but if we're honest, if we're humble, if we're willing, we know it's not a need. In fact, it might be more than we bargained for. Let's just say when we get certain blessings. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, 8 in the King James. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And Paul was talking about a lot of good things he did that he had in his past, he had on his resume. And I think we underestimate the freedom of having the distractions of life removed from our relationship with the Lord. I think at times we don't even believe that dropping these distractions will result in freedom or even happiness. You know, it's that whole grip, that tight, tight grip. We don't want to let go, white knuckle in it. Because we think those things are giving us a certain level of happiness or something. When the Lord has far better ways, as we just read. So we underestimate the freedom of having the distractions of life removed from our relationship with the Lord. And that's where faith comes in. But if we throw everything behind us, one garbage bag at a time, and crawl all the way up to the feet of Jesus and listen to his word, there will be nothing so clean and pure in life that can give us such happiness and contentment. There's nothing like it. We can't even make an analogy to something on earth that would be like it because there's nothing even close to being as clean and pure. Um, and we might even say noble, you know, honorable. We might go in that direction. There's nothing so clean and refreshing as to literally put it all behind and sit at the feet of Jesus that way. And again, it's really an attitude of the heart. What's the attitude of the heart? It's having him as your first love, honestly, without anything else on pedestals in your heart. And one example of even putting good things aside that's come up lately is to put aside the idea of getting married or the idea of marriage being the end-all, be-all. That might be a better way to say it. A lot of people, married or single, Picture this thing called marriage as the end-all, be-all. Like once I get this thing done or, or, you know, it's often an idea. There's not even a, um, a person in mind necessarily. It's the idea of marriage being a fix-it-all. Ask anyone that's married. That's not the case. And people idolize. <laughs> hey, somebody laughed, DJ. People idolize marriage. Idolize it. This gift from God. Why would you idolize a gift from God? Isn't that silly? Isn't that worshiping the blessings instead of the blessor? Why would you put any blessing, even from God, on a pedestal in your heart 
when the one that gave it is obviously the only important one, the necessary one to worship. But people make the mistake of idolizing marriage as a solution in life, when in reality, more problems also come with the blessings. Now, if you're already married, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. It's a gift from God. And each spouse must make a concerted effort to follow the Lord individually and together. If they decide to serve the Lord together, even praying together as a unit, it could be a fruitful marriage to the glory of God. Now that said, Paul did offer the single people a different perspective. On the board in 1 Corinthians 7, 35, the Living Bible. I'm saying this to help you, not to try to keep you from marrying. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few other things as possible to distract your attention from Him. I love that phrase, as few other things as possible. That garbage bag that fell from the sky between you and Jesus, the one with all the marriage stuff in it, it's not that it's bad, but it should be behind you. It should be at your back. It shouldn't be at your front, in front of Jesus. Nothing wrong with it. Could be a blessing. Not meant for all people. But look at the phrase again, with as few other things as possible. That was Paul's heart towards the Corinthians. That's what I want for you. I'm not saying don't get married, but I want you to have the best chance to bring God the most glory in your life. So remember the bags of garbage piling up between you and the Lord. We want a clear line of sight and clear hearing of the Lord while he's teaching us. Amen? I mean, do you want that? You've got to ask yourself that. And if, that's, if that is a true desire of yours, then God will help you get there, and you'll be able to see clearer, you'll be able to have that, uh, that pure, more pure experience at the feet of Jesus. So we've been talking about on the board, undistracted devotion to the Lord. This refers to a life void of distractions that take you away from your first love. Revelation 2.4 Anything that creates a distance between you and Christ is evil. That's a different perspective than most Christian churches are willing to even teach. But it's true. Anything, even good things, even blessings from God that you inordinately put up on a pedestal in your soul and ends up creating a distance between you and Christ, you've just made a blessing evil. Because you put it before Christ. It's that simple. I couldn't help but think of a wonderful example for all of us, regardless of our condition right now in this life. It's from a woman who apparently, consciously decided to remain single after losing her husband at a young age. And not only that, she decided the Lord would be her only husband for the rest of her life and that she would serve him in the temple every single day. And she was rewarded for making the Lord her first love, culminating in seeing the Messiah himself before she went home to be with the Lord. 
many of you have figured out I'm speaking of a woman named Anna in the scriptures. So turn to uh, Luke 2.36. Luke 2.36. This is when Joseph and Mary brought baby Jesus to the temple. Luke 2.36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him, the baby Jesus, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Do you see what this woman consciously decided to do with the rest of her life after losing her husband? At a very young age, by the way, very possibly only 25 or 30 years old, because they got married as teenagers back then. She decided to serve the Lord in the temple for the rest of her life. And she did so, think about this now, she did so undistracted for 50 to 60 years. How awesome is that? Do you think she has any regrets right now in heaven? We get so focused on this life, right, and our problems and getting through certain things and comforts. Do you think she has any regrets right now that she put her own life aside in that way and served the Lord undistracted for 50 to 60 years? How would you feel if that's the story of the end of your life? And we're all in different situations. It doesn't mean this is what everyone's supposed to do. It means what a wonderful example of someone who put aside her own desires. So on the board, let's just call it Anna's undistracted devotion. Do you think she was bored or lonely? Or do you think the Lord filled her cup because she put him and his people first? I'm going to guess the second one. Did she have moments of weakness? Of course, she had to. But the purity that she must have experienced, worshiping the Lord solely, undistracted, alone, like that, had to build and build and build in her soul by the grace of God. So again, do you think she was bored or lonely, or do you think the Lord filled her cup because she put him and his people first? Do you think she was happy and at peace by putting the distractions aside and making him her first love? Now, we don't know that she, quote-unquote, moved into the temple right after her husband's death. It really doesn't directly say that. But the decision that she made is very clear. To not get married again, but to sit at the Lord's feet and enjoy being married to him alone for the rest of her life serving the Lord and his people wherever she could, however she could, as a good wife to the Lord, undistracted. So she's really an example for all of us to think about. It doesn't matter your station in life right now, your condition. In fact, she was both married and single, single for most of her life. But it doesn't matter your condition. What a great example of 
deciding to put distractions out of the picture behind her back. So besides being enslaved to romantic relationships, we also talked about being handcuffed to wealth. Another one of those bags of garbage that can fall in between ourselves and the Lord. On the board, Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. So there's another counterfeit love, the love of money. Nothing wrong with money. Everything wrong with the love of money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. As came out on Sunday, are we presupposing? And I put the hyphen in there for those of you that might have a you know, problem with the, the concept of presuppositions. Are we presupposing? In other words, are we supposing beforehand that something is good? Almost like having unrealistic expectations. Are we presupposing? If we presuppose a want is a need, we are able to justify just about anything ridiculous that ultimately takes us away from the Lord. Aren't we? We're master justifiers. Have you ever, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they're not necessarily following the Lord, let's say. They might be a believer, but they're not really into the Word. You know, they're getting distracted. And they tell you something that is absurd, and they're justifying it as godly. Like, it's not even close. But they've rationalized it so much in their own soul that they've convinced themselves it's okay. I mean, we've probably been on both sides of that equation at times. But what happens, what happens to that person? the piles of garbage stacked up so high, that's all they could see. And now they're going to fit it in their life and pretend it's godly. Somehow, some way. We will do anything to get what we want sometimes. We're so ridiculous. So again, are we presupposing? If we presuppose a want is a need, we are able to justify just about anything ridiculous that ultimately takes us away from the Lord. However, if we're honest about presuppositions, we cannot build a case for our fleshly desires. Again, it takes honesty and humility. So where does this leave us? If we're honest with ourselves and with God, right, and we're not playing games, we bow down, you know, at his feet, so to speak, and we're honest about our presuppositions, where does this leave us? It leaves us in a position of freedom. Freedom to love the Lord from an undistracted heart. To, to see more of His love. Isn't that what we want? To understand, to like grab hold of somehow a piece of His garment? To see what His love really is like. This is hard to describe. Because we, we don't, as a rule have it. We don't comprehend his love. It's supernatural. It's so far above us, etc. But it's only when the garbage is cleared out of the way that he can show us like more of the depth of it, let's say. And therefore more freedom. If you want it. But it takes honesty. 
So as the Spirit's been encouraging us, we must remain in the sphere of His love at all times. It's then that we're at peace and we're able to bear fruit by His sacrificial love alive in our lives. As we've been noting, godly love is sacrificial. Godly love is sacrificial. There's no way around that. That's a, that's a key sign of true love. And it's supernatural. Only God himself is the source of it. We can try as hard as we want on our own to do it. As we know, we can't do it. We have to rely on him for the power. So we must abide in his love as instruments of righteousness to be able to bear good fruit. Truly good fruit. To be very practical, the Spirit's been asking us, who or what do you love more than Jesus? And if you're not sure, a clue to that is who or what are you sacrificing your time for each day? Just think about it. What do you, what do you put like your attention into the most uh, in your affections? It could be actively, it could be just in your, in your soul, your heart, what, what you pay attention to, what you, again, put on a pedestal. Who or what are you sacrificing your time for each day? That's a good sign of where you're at. And we like to live in denial, but remember, something that's legitimately good, even in God's eyes, can become evil if placed before the Lord. For example, marriage, right? Or even the idea of it. How about the idea of being rich? Not, be, not being rich, you might have very little compared to others, but how about just the idea of it? Does that, um, I guess, haunt you? Does that pester you or draw you in or try to suck you in to being preoccupied with that? could be a lot of things. To have anything or anyone replace Christ as our first love is just simply unrighteous. It's unrighteous. It's not right. There couldn't be anything more wrong than to put the blessings ahead of the blessor. It's the most silly thing in the world, right? So if you're a parent and you give your child the toy that they wanted, and now the child like says, I love you to the toy instead of you, that's kind of what we do to God. It's pretty sick. But that's where we are. Stuck with his flesh. And this is one reason repentance needs to be a way of life, even for us as believers. A way of life. That humble, repentant attitude. Always going back to him. You know, as dad. And when we offend dad, we should be upset. Because of the gracious dad we have. So turn again in your Bibles to Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. There could be nothing more wrong than to put anything ahead of Jesus, the giver of whatever blessings we might be thinking about. Luke 14, 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
on the board. We saw this on Sunday regarding hate his own father. This is a relative statement. Unfettered love for Jesus in its purest expression is so great that every other attachment pales in comparison. So much so that when imposed as the standard, his love makes other love measure up as hatred. That's how far above our love for Christ should be than our love for anything or person in this life. So we all got a long way to go, right? We, we know this. We know we struggle with this. But what's the idea? Supernaturally, God can do it in us over time as we get out of the way, as he sanctifies us. Our first reaction might be, I can't do it, Lord. How do I, what do you mean, hate my father? I can't, I love them. Well, there's somebody I love, right, my life, maybe not all these categories. Or I love my own life. That's not good. But he knows we struggle. And he knows we can't do it. He wants us to admit we can't do it. And it's not that he wants you to not love your family member. It's that he wants himself to be elevated up to the appropriate high position in our hearts. Far above the rest. That's what he wants, and that's what he deserves, right? The one who gave you your family and all the good gifts, how can he not be loved and cherished more than the gifts themselves? The point is there should be no comparison. He should be at the top of the mountain, okay? Picture yourself at Mount Everest, and you're at the base of Mount Everest. Can't even see the top through the clouds. He should be at the top of the mountain in our soul. We and our family and our loved ones and the things we do love in this world that are blessings should be at the base of the mountain. That's how much the difference should be, right? And we, you know, we, we can't do it. As we've seen, like here on the board, I can't love like that. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't have the strength. But remember, love is a gift from God. So we mustn't exacerbate ourselves because we lack a portion of it. And I'm guilty of this. I've done this over even the last few years. We mustn't exacerbate ourselves because we lack a portion of his love. To love like Christ and to love him even is a function of sanctification, which takes time. Time is a necessary ingredient for everybody. And the greatest advice we can get regarding this, just stay humble. Just keep seeking him. Keep bowing at his feet. Keep repenting. And he'll get us there to this place of like experiencing his pure love. Seeing it for what it really is. And letting it change us from the inside out. God will fill our cups as long as we continue to humbly ask him for help and understanding. Over time, he promises to sanctify us and bring us there to the place of true godly love. Again, on the board, love is a gift from God. And to love like Christ and to love him even is a function of sanctification, which takes time. So just stay humble. As the Spirit's been prodding us, May our love be functional and not just lip service. We've seen this on the board a couple times, 1 John 3, 18 in the Amplified. Little children, believers, dear ones, 
Let us not love merely in theory, with word or with tongue, giving lip service to compassion, but in action and in truth, in practice and in sincerity, because practical acts of love are more than words. And on the board, a big part of living in God's love is an active lifestyle of forgiveness. A huge part of acting in God's love is an active lifestyle of forgiveness. We might say forgiveness is the expression of God's love. So consider this for a minute. Follow me if you can. I know it's difficult at times. I know it's difficult being in my own head at times, so I understand. But follow me if you can here. What is grace? What is grace? One definition is that grace is love in action. So, what is grace? Isn't it treating people in undeserved kindness? Like actively speaking, treating someone with undeserved kindness, functionally. And why is it undeserved? Because we're all guilty, right? There is not an innocent soul on this earth. So it's undeserved kindness. And God chose to forgive us, which is to love us anyway, despite our attacks against him. Forgiveness is the expression of God's love. So if we're missing forgiveness, we probably aren't in the sphere of love. And so it is with ourselves and our brothers and sisters, right? If Jesus loved this way, if God loved this way, if that's grace, and if Jesus loved that way, sacrificially, in a forgiving way, then isn't that our calling to imitate him? And again, a big part of living in God's love is an active lifestyle of forgiveness. And with forgiveness being a part of God's love on the board, an unforgiving heart is a heart without peace. It has to be, because you're not in the sphere of his love. You just, you can't be. Forgiveness is a part of who God is. And when we choose to live apart from that, we've lost our first love. When we choose to live apart from forgiveness, you know, holding grudges, being bitter, etc., etc., right? We've lost our first love. Because if he was our first love, we would want to do anything possible to have forgiveness between one another. We would want to reconcile no matter what or how because Jesus is my first love and I'm not going to let him down. I can't believe what he did for me. How can I withhold forgiveness from somebody, right? So again, on the board, we've talked a lot about the sphere of forgiveness. We ought never think of forgiveness as merely transactional, but rather we ought to think of it the way we think of love, spherical. We, we pursue forgiveness as a way of life, whether we are the offender or the offended. How can we do this? Well, it's supernatural, of course. 
It has to be, right? We just can't do it on our own. But think of the cross. Anytime you get stuck, think of the cross. What happened on that day? And why did Jesus choose to hang there for us? The Spirit reminded us on Sunday, forgiveness was hanging in the balance. If he had chosen not to follow through on the cross, forgiveness would never have been granted to all of us. But love motivated him to follow through on the sacrifice all the way to the cross so that forgiveness could be consummated and he could continue to love us for all eternity as his very own. As we were given on Sunday, to the one who uttered, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Forgiveness was the ultimate objective, as in Luke 23, 34. Forgiveness was the ultimate objective. That was the goal. That was the accomplishment of love. So it's at this point we were reminded of a very important mindset that Jesus carried around with him. Jesus, unlike the legalistic religious folks, wasn't focused on calling out the sins of others, but he was focused on reconciliation. Helping people turn to him for peace with God. This is really astounding when you think about it. Because he was the only person who had a right to judge the sins of others. And he didn't. And here we are without the right to judge the sins of others, and what do we do? We judge other sins, and then the very next day we commit it. Same sin we judged. Jesus' primary goal in his incarnation wasn't even to walk around judging the sins of the masses. It was to save them. Turn again to John 12, 44. It was to save them. This is just mind-blowing, really, because he would have been righteous to judge the sins of everybody. But he came to save them. He came to reconcile them to God. John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So what can we learn here from my Lord? This also came out on Sunday on the board. While sin must be acknowledged and confessed, it isn't our place to judge it. Do you see the difference? Like we know, we know that's what should be done with sin, right? We might even tell people that's what should be done with sin. Acknowledge it, confess it. But it isn't our place to judge it. This is the perspective that the religious camp needs to adopt. So what's our job? If the one who could have righteously judged sin didn't judge sin, then clearly that's not our job. Our job is to follow in his footsteps. Let's tell others about the peace 
that God Almighty desires to have with them. That's our focus in spreading the gospel. God extends an offer of peace even to the worst of sinners. On the board, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What was the focus? Peace with God. When's the last time, and I was even thinking about this for myself, when you know I have the chance to witness to somebody, and you start talking about the gospel, and you know the Spirit's going to guide you. It's going to be different every time. But when's the last time you said to somebody who maybe even was down about their own sin, know they're a sinner at least, right? When's the last time you said, did you know that God Almighty actually wants to have peace with you? What a, what a, what a concept. So instead of get going at it from all these different angles, why don't we tell them what is being offered them like that? Pray about it. But that's our ministry, to lead people to reconciliation with God. So on the board, save judgment for that day. Speaking of the judgment day one day, save judgment for that day, just like vengeance is the Lord's in due time. It's his, that's his deal. It says, Lord, not, not our uh, responsibility, not our right, nothing. That's not our business. Our business is to tell people about the peace that God Almighty desires to have with them. That's our focus as we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. God extends an offer of peace even to the worst of sinners. And that's what's mind-blowing about God's love. Then you know you're on the right focus, right? Because God's love is out in front, front and center in your discussion, in your approach. And so we share his love and his offer of undeserved kindness. And his love goes before us, and his love is left behind us as we leave whatever encounters we have. So regarding love and forgiveness, they spring from the same vine, and that vine is Jesus Christ. Christ's love and forgiving heart were evidenced on the cross. We celebrate his heart when we partake in communion. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. But with him we can do miraculous things, like love like he does, like forgive like he does. So we are to stay attached to the vine, living in and spreading his love for all mankind, spreading the message of peace that God wants to have with sinners. And FYI, as we begin to close, this involves sacrifice. There's no way around this. If you're going to love like God, this involves sacrifice. Because where do we live, folks? We're in the devil's world. Even though we um, lose sight of that sometimes in America when things are going well or you know we have certain prosperity, we're smack in the middle of the devil's world. What do you think is going to happen when you love like Christ? You're going to get persecuted. 
as Paul said, when, when you love, you'll be loved less at times. When you love more, people are going to love you less. That makes no sense. But it does if you remember you're in the devil's world. And there's demon-possessed people you deal with. There's demon-influenced people you deal with. People are going to abuse you at times for loving sacrificially. But that's part of carrying our cross for the Lord. In Luke 9, 23, in the Amplified, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself, set aside selfish interests, and take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. This is our Lord's will for us, to pick up our cross daily. And the cross represents, at its core, love and forgiveness. So that must be part of our cross too, right? Just as Jesus laid aside his own desires and comfort for the sake of others, that's what we're called to do. That's loving, because when you love someone that doesn't know any better, you're going to get mocked, abused, spit on. When you love someone that doesn't know better yet, that's what you're going to get. But isn't that who we're reaching out to? Those who are ignorant of God's love? So don't be surprised, but that's what the Lord did. As the Spirit gave us on Sunday in so many words, carrying our cross is a decision to put selfish desires aside and live for the reconciliation of others, whatever the cost to us may be. Carrying our cross is a decision to put selfish desires aside and live for the reconciliation of others, whatever the cost to us may be. Very humbling, but there couldn't be a more noble life to live. Kind of like Anna, living in the temple for so many years. That's the sacrificial love of God that is so beautiful, that is so overwhelming. And if we are simply willing, God will give us the power to carry these crosses. He'll even make our burden light. On the board in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Functionally, function in love. Through love, serve one another. So while you're staring at this verse on the board, I want to close with the story of a woman named Harriet Tubman. You may recognize her name as an American slave from the 1800s who not only escaped from slavery in the South, but became a major cog in the Underground Railroad. Harriet Tubman Around 1850, she escaped from her slave owner's plantation in Maryland and traveled by night up to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she was then free. But she immediately went back to help lead her friends and family out of slavery also. And that made me think of Galatians 5.13. She 
she put aside her own new, newfound freedom to go back at the risk of her own life to free others. And think about this. You might say, why would she go back? Let, let the others escape on their own time and, you know, find their way. Here's the thing. And this is spiritual analogies, right? Now she knew the way. She knew the way out. She found the path. She found people that even helped her along the way. She knew the way out. She knew the way to freedom. And they didn't. Her family and friends didn't. I've got to go back and show them the way. She was a devout Christian and trusted God to help her find the way back even, each and every time. It was said of her that she never lost one passenger. She made 13 trips in all, going back and risking her own life each time to save those who were still trapped in slavery. Hope you see the analogy. The question on the table for us believers is, what will you do with your freedom? Will you use it to satisfy your flesh, uh, even just to live for your own life? Nothing wrong with that, right? Harriet could have lived her own life in freedom after escaping. Or will you use your freedom to go back and set others free, those still trapped in slavery to sin with no hope of eternal life? You know the way now. They don't. Living in the Great Commission, right? Are you going to choose to live for yourself and live your own little life with the freedom God's given you, or are you going to live in the Great Commission? Somehow, some way. To rescue others from slavery to sin. That's our choice. And we know what the Lord desires of us. He desires us to do like He did for us. So again, the question on the table is on the board. In Galatians 5.13, How will you use your freedom? For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And our Lord, more than any other person, is the one who used his freedom to serve others. May his example of love and sacrifice motivate us to live for others who are still trapped in slavery to sin and death, therefore. Are we not appreciative of what we've been saved from? Because if we could care less about others, I would say that's the case. Are we not even concerned about our, our friends and family that are not seeing the way out? Not even seeing that they're slaves, even? Hopefully, again, the Lord's example motivates us to live the same sacrificial way. Through love, serve one another. And as Jesus said in John 14, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for the brethren. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the example of our Lord and his totally unselfish sacrifice. We thank you for being rescued from slavery to sin and death. We thank you for showing us the way out. And we ask that you help us live with the same love that he 
loved us with, Father, to show others the way out also. Help us, Father, to obey your commands and your great commission and your purpose for our lives so that we do the right and noble thing with the freedom that you've given us. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.